A mask can be anything we hide behind. Maybe it's a piece of molded plastic that makes us look like someone else. Maybe it's a smile we put on when we're really feeling down. Or maybe it's something as simple as saying one thing and thinking another. We all wear masks sometimes. It's unavoidable. Maybe you're aware of yours and maybe you're not. So let's give some thought to that, shall we? What mask do you wear? All right, class, that is all for today. Your homework is to write one page on a mask you have worn and to get as much candy as you can tonight. Anyone who brings me a Snickers gets extra credit. Happy Halloween. Okay, bye guys. Have a good weekend. Don't stay out too late and don't egg any cars, Benjamin. Tommy, don't drop that pumpkin. I think it's almost as big as you are. Bye. <sighs> That's why I don't tell any of you little monsters where I live. Ooh, let's see what's happening tonight. Can't wait to finally meet you in person. Hope you're not a catfish, LOL. Not a catfish, just a cat. A cat? My costume. It's a costume party. Oh God, did I not tell you that? I'm so sorry. I told him that. Oh no, I totally forgot. Three exclamation points. JK, I'll be the best looking pirate in the room. Of course you will. I can't wait. <laughs> Internet dating is a necessary evil. I just hope this one isn't a freak. He agreed to a first date on Halloween, so who knows what I'm gonna get. I gather my things, lunchbox, reusable water bottle, purse, tote bag, planner, stack of assignments to grade, then lock the door behind me and walk out through the locker-lined halls. I wave to my colleagues and some students and drop a 20 in the UNICEF box in the front office. The secretary smiles at me. Oh, thank you, Miss Bates. You're always so generous, she says. UNICEF is lucky I love Halloween, I say with a wink, then walk out the front door. Hey, a friend of mine shouts from across the parking lot. Hey, happy Halloween. You have some scary plans for tonight, I ask. That's what I wanted to ask you about, she replies. A bunch of us are going to a haunted house later, and we thought maybe you'd want to join. Mr. P is coming, she says with a smile. School is out for the day. You can call him Mike. And I'd love to go, but I have a date, I say cautiously. Another one on Halloween? Is it the musician, she asks. No, he ghosted me too. This is another one. He seems nice, but I probably won't stay super long. Just a couple drinks. In costume. So, that'll be interesting, I say, knowing that she's going to disapprove of me meeting another internet guy. A hobby that hasn't always gone well for me in the past. Krista, are you okay? You know you can take a break after what you went through, she says, very concerned. Last Halloween, I met up with a man from a dating site. We had drinks at his house and watched a movie, pulled around a little, and then I left. After I left, he got a rope from his shed, tied it around his neck, and hanged himself from a big oak tree in his backyard. It was all over the news. I had to be interviewed by the police a bunch of times since I was the last person to see him. But I barely knew the guy, so I really couldn't tell them much. It was a lot. My friends are justifiably worried. Yes, I'll, I'll be okay. We're going to a bar. The whole thing will be very public, and I'm not going to his house afterward. 
I have to live my life. I can't let something I had no control over stop me. At least, that's what my therapist says. I say earnestly. In truth, I am a little nervous. Okay. Good for you. Well, we're not going until like 10. We're gonna have dinner first, so maybe you can meet up with us when you're done. Tell us all about it. She says, clearly wanting to take care of me, which I do appreciate. Yeah, that sounds good. It'll give me a reason not to ignore my better judgment and stick around for too long, I say, happy to have a distraction for the second half of my evening. Great, says my friend. If he's cool, you can bring him. And if not, stand next to Mike. You never know when you'll need someone to hold on to. It's pretty scary, she teases. All right, I say, I'll see you later. Oh, and uh, I might be dressed as a cat. A cat? She says, you can do better than that. At least give it some claws or sharp teeth or something. It's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. She finishes and then starts to walk back to her car. She's right. They do. I drive home looking at the little trick-or-treaters beginning to make their way through the tree-lined streets of my safe little neighborhood. I park in the driveway and my neighbor's five-year-old daughter immediately comes at me with a big hug. She's dressed as Bluey, the cartoon dog. I reach in my school bag and hand her three full-sized candy bars. She's my favorite. Sometimes I watch her when her mom has to work the night shift. Then I head inside, pour myself a glass of wine to steady my nerves, and put on my costume. Tight, black, one-piece suit, black boots, black gloves, ears, and a tail. I draw on whiskers and a nose with black eyeliner, and then add the finishing touch. Four silver rings. The rings crawl up the full length of my finger and end with a sharp, pointed claw. Annie's right. The claws are a nice touch. I wasn't going to wear them this time, but I don't know. They seem to fit. I drive to the bar a little early. It's 5.30. Haunted happy hour is going strong. The bar is covered in gory plastic sculptures and animatronics. There are cotton cobwebs strung all over the walls. The bartender is dressed as a sexy scarecrow, tiny hat and all. I order a Coke with a lime, which looks like a cocktail but isn't and explain to the bartender that I'm on a first date and I don't want to get drunk because I don't know this guy. I ask her if she would give me this if I order a rum and coke, just to be safe. I got you, girl. We have to look out for each other. Oh, and if he gets weird, order an angel shot. We'll take care of the rest, she says quietly and smiles. She's right. We do have to take care of each other. At 6.15, a pirate staggers through the door. He's shorter than his profile says, older too, but good looking, doesn't matter. He'll do. Hello, puppet, he says, laughing at his own dated joke and sits down at the stool next to mine. Meow, I say, hoping it cups across as cute, but more likely it was awkward. We sit there for the next hour and a half chatting. I sip my fake rum and coke. He orders bourbon, neat. He gets in three drinks in 90 minutes with a bathroom break between the second and third. I order one additional rum and coke and the bartender makes good on her promise. The pirate talks about himself nonstop. His name is Tom. He works in finance. He likes working out and traveling. His last girlfriend was an Instagram model and a total bitch. His favorite movie is Shawshank, and he thinks Halloween is kind of stupid, but my costume is hot. Red flag. I love Halloween. Game on. After the third round, I say quietly, hey, let's get out of here. There's a corn maze down the street. I, I know it's cheesy, but um, it could be fun. I'll drive. Then I smile and adjust his ascot. Okay, yeah, that sounds good, he replies. I park down the block on the right. It's the white SUV with a ghost bumper sticker on it. 
I'll go warm up the car and look up the details. You can take care of the tab, right? I say sweetly. Of course, he says, pulling out a black Amex card that he clearly wanted everyone to see. As I walk out, I see our bartender coming from the restroom. Perfect. Everything okay? Yes. Yeah, he's a jerk, I say. I think he's been texting another girl this whole time. I told him to pay and meet me outside, but I'm gonna ghost. Feel free to charge him for top shelf rum, I add, laughing. Sounds good to me, she says, and then adds, happy Halloween. I walk out to the parking lot, get in my car, and drive down the block a couple yards before putting the car in park. I open my glove box and take out an iPhone in a black case with a white ghost on it. See you soon, I text. I'll be there in an hour. My meeting is running late. At six o'clock on a Friday, that's not even a good lie. Boo, sad face. Well, I can't wait to see you. Don't make me wait too long. My costume is tiny and it's cold out. I'll be there soon. Just look for the best looking pirate in the room. And don't worry, I can keep you warm. Winky face. God, this guy's a one trick pony through and through. I send a hard eyes emoji and put the phone back in the glove box. The pirate makes his way to my car. He is staggering. He gets in the passenger seat and closes his door. We drive down a long, dark road flanked by cornfields. He puts his hand on my leg. I pull into a pitch black access path in the corn. He raises his eyebrows. I put the car in park and smile slyly. This doesn't look like a corn maze. It just looks like corn. What are we gonna do here? All alone, he says, clearly understanding what two people might do there all alone. Oh, I don't know, I say. This is a section of maze they didn't use this year for the haunted stuff. I know someone who works here and they told me about this spot. Don't worry, there aren't any cameras, I say, getting out of the car and stepping into the moonlight. Come and get me, I add, giggling and running down a thin channel in corn. Ready or not, here I come, he yells. I know this field well and duck into a small crevice waiting for him to pass. I hear him coming, his breathing labored and his necklaces jingling. I hold my breath and hear him slow down. Come out, come out wherever you are, he says, slurring his words. Some men just can't handle their ketamine. As he walks past my hiding spot, I slip out of the corn and follow him silently. He's disoriented, I can tell. His vision seems to be blurring and he's having a hard time staying upright. You should never leave your drink unattended, I say, which startles him, causing him to trip over his own feet and fall. You bring it with you when you go to the bathroom. You'd know that if you were a woman, I say. What did you do to me? He says thickly. Nothing, I say. Yet. At this point, he can barely hold himself up. I approach slowly and sit down next to him. Isn't this what you wanted? I say, dragging a silver claw over his cheek lightly. No, you crazy bitch. I'm out of here, he says, fighting his way to his feet. <laughs> no, you're not. I say, as I grab onto his leg, then dig a silver claw into his Achilles tendon and pull. In an instant, he's back on the ground, screaming. I roll him flat on his back and sit on top of him. You think you're such a prize, don't you? You think you can have whoever you want, whenever you want. Well, you can't. Men like you have to be taught a lesson. And lucky for you, I'm a teacher. I say, raking my claws down his chest, leaving deep, dark, red gashes. 
He tries to fight, but the drugs are in full effect now, and his attempts are feeble. You shouldn't play games with women, I say, if you don't want them to play games with you. Last year I played hangman, but someone was a sore loser and got himself on the news, I add. So this year I chose something different. I dig my claws in and rake them horizontally across his stomach, creating a grim tic-tac-toe board as he screams. I'll be X's and you be O's, I say, carving an X into the center square as he wails in agony. Come on, it's your turn. No. No, well, I guess I'll just play by myself. I carve an X into the space to its right and then to its left. Tic-tac-toe, three in a row. I win, I say. Ooh, that'll be my friends checking in on me. I hate to cut this short, but you're not the only one who made other plans tonight. I dig the silver claws into his throat hard and pull them all the way across. Then I get up and drag his lifeless body into the corn. I walk back out through a different path, making sure to step over the other tic-tac-toe boards as I make my way to my car. X wins every time. I love Halloween. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. my very favorite bad guy of all time is Michael Myers. Yes. Yes. Love me some Mike any way I can get him. I love the original Halloween. I love the new Halloween. I loved Halloween Ends. I don't care who has an artsy issue with it. I thought it was the most fun and so satisfying as a person who has been a Laurie Strode fan for a great many years. Here, here. Yes, it was a good one. So if you want to talk to me about it and you liked it, I'm here for it. But if you hated it and you want to have a bad time, you get pro- out of here. Yeah, you probably got to find somebody else to talk to. Yeah. It's not here. Just go to Reddit and have a field day. Yeah, they'll be so excited about shitting on everything with you. It'll be yeah. great. Also, like Facebook is really good at just like spewing things out into the void. Definitely. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a really yeah. good echo chamber. And someone will um, argue with you if you like that. Yeah. So find it there. So good. So good. Not They're for fun me. Little trolls. <laughs> With the, like, neon hair that sticks yeah. up. <laughs> Once you picture online trolls as trolls, it's so fun. I've never done that, and now I'm going to. I just picture, like, those little troll toys, like, jumping on the computer and just tapping away with, like, <laughs> their belly little, button jewels yeah. and their <laughs> fat little hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're mad. Yeah. Oh, boy. Your mom's fat. <laughs> <laughs> They have so many off-color comments. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. I'm going to use that one. Anyway, every year I look for the real Michael Myers in quotations. I just want to find out that his original story was like inspired secretly by some real case. And a lot of things like that, a lot of of like slasher movie, horror movies are, they do have Mm -hmm. a real base. 
but I never find anything that says this one does. There are a lot of theories, of course. Some people think Michael Myers was based on the babysitter and the man upstairs stories. And we talked about those in our scary stories to tell in the dark episode. Really great for Halloween. If you haven't listened to that one, give it a listen. Super fun. But there are no like calls coming from inside the house when we're dealing with Michael Myers. He never says a word. Recently, Halloween creator John Carpenter revealed that no, Michael is not based on a real case or a like a murderer at all. Mm-hmm. But he is based on a real person. Oh. Did you read this? No. I only recently found it. He said it in an interview that happened like just a couple, just like a year ago or so. And the story is that when John Carpenter was in college, he took a psychology class. During this class, the instructor took the students to a real mental hospital to mm-hmm. observe the patients. A bold move, but it was a long time ago, especially in your bachelor's degree. Yeah. Generally, you're not in any kind of field study then, but you oh, know that, what? No, that's not true. No, no. I was, I was fully in a field study like freshman year. All right. Well, mm-hmm. there you go. You could have had this experience too. I hope yeah. you didn't. <laughs> While he was there, John Carpenter observed a young boy with the blackest eyes he'd ever seen. He sat quietly, never spoke, never responded to anyone, never indicated he knew anything was going on in the room around him, never made eye contact, and stared into the abyss. Wow. Yeah. And this experience stayed with John Carpenter forever. He can still describe this kid's shark eyes to you, like, in detail. He felt that that must be what the presence of evil looks like. And thus, Michael Myers, who, let's not forget, began his career as a child familial murderer, was born. Hmm. So he thought, like, creepy kid that looks evil, and that's where Michael Myers came from. So really, the kid part was first. Right. Wow. Yeah, which I thought, I thought that was super interesting because when you think, oh, some, he must have come from somewhere, you always think an adult that, you know, committed some heinous crime. You never think, oh, probably a kid that was awful. Right, right. And this kid wasn't necessarily awful. He just haunted him. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that was super interesting. So furthermore, John Carpenter has gone on to explain that the reason Michael Myers is so scary is because he has no reason. He cannot be explained. His need to kill is primal, and he is so beyond explanation that the character is never even given the opportunity to speak. He just doesn't. That's the scary part about him. So where do we find this in the real world? (laughs) One would hope nowhere. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be super interesting if I could say to you, like, I found the boy. (laughs) And he's here with us right now. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be crazy. I know. But I didn't. And honestly, I really hope he went on to find some peace and he's fine and life is good. (laughs) Found some lightness in those eyes. Yeah. His shark eyes just just swam away. I don't know. Came jellyfish. I don't know. (laughs) did. So squishy. But what I did find is a case that so closely mimics Michael Myers in lack of motivation and early presentation that the realization made me nearly veer off the road when I had it. So I just had to cover it for all of you guys this spooky season. So in this, in my opinion, this is the real Michael Myers, even though it did happen much later. Okay. Anyway, but I have to tell you guys, spending a whole week imagining what it would be like if Michael Myers were real is not exactly a tonic for restful sleep. Oh, no. 
Look at me. I'm a mess. It's gross. It's terrible. I'm sorry you have to be in the same room as me. You know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. My eye bags have packed up their own eye bags. Mm. And we have not one, but two live shows coming up this month. Yes, we do. So I would really prefer to look good when y'all see me in person, because hopefully you guys do, especially because Leslie is going to look perfect and youthful and I can't be like hagging along next to her. <laughs> untrue, untrue. I'm I mean, feeling I, a bit tired. Are you? Yes. Definitely not because it's super late at night. No, I feel great. <laughs> but you deserve better than my hagging along self. I was really hoping that our chalice of baby's blood would, like, make a strong comeback. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's Halloween time, so, like, this is the time for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's still empty. I know. I just pulled it out of the drawer, and I was like, oh, my God, it's empty. I, this was, like, my fallback. I know. Like, so it's going to be full, and then it's not. What do we do? Well, I tried to research modern fountains of youth, but all I came up with were multi-level marketing schemes, and mm -hmm. we uh, we all know how both of us feel about those. Yeah, yeah. What about it, like a Lazarus pit? Where do I get a Lazarus pit? I don't know. In like <laughs> a Batman or Arrow comic. This is not a good suggestion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel super possible. Yeah. Somewhere deep in a dark tunnel. All right. Well, if you guys find that, you let us know. But pretty much we were out of luck. Thankfully, there is one thing that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt will make our skin glow like moonlit specters, but in a good way. Hmm. This All Hallows Eve. Just a silver bullet's worth of validation, a hill worth dying on. We'll do the trick. And lucky for us, our fiends can provide us with it. <gasps> oh my God. How? But how, you are asking yourself. It makes me laugh every week. Every And every week, I want to know how. I'm delighted every time. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And it would be super cool if we could move this podcast forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have started saying it's my real job. There you go. You did it. Yes. Manifest it. So I'm at the manifestation station. It, I mean, this is a job. All aboard. Yeah. Let's go. And moving forward means that we could probably hire some help, which in turn will mean more content, <gasps> which is what everybody really wants in the end, isn't mm -hmm. it? More of us. We're a delight. But if you just can't wait for more, we would be dead in your life. Lucky for you, you don't have to. You can simply support us over on Patreon. Patreon. Woo. That's a good one this week. <laughs> there, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly after-show post-mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, opportunities to Zoom with us and other cool patrons, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. You can leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the creepy black-eyed kid who never talks. What's their name? Ooh. Yeah. Well, I guess that would be Damien. Damien. I would have gone with Michael. Well. Then your friends and Damien can become fiends and we can all hang out together. 
Damien's the Antichrist, though. He's going to bring in even more fiends. I just know yes. it. I, I Yeah. I mean, I think he'll be a really good advocate. He's a crowd pleaser. He's, like, quiet but sophisticated. Michael wouldn't have done that. No, he doesn't speak he at all. So. He wouldn't make any friends with anybody. No, that's true. Damien doesn't need to speak to have friends. He just makes people jump off the roof and shit. It's fine. Yeah, and he'll make them listen to us. This is going somewhere dark. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, don't forget to get your tickets or VIF passes or both to our live shows this month. There are two now. Two. Yay! We'll be giving an encore performance of our Amityville Horror Show on October 28th for Exit Zero at the Ferry Terminal. It's cool. There are restaurants and an art gallery. It's not just like a place for boats. Right. (laughs) It's fun. And then on the 30th, we'll be back at Cape May Brewing Company to tell you all about Count Dracula. Mm-hmm. That night won't suck. <gasps> or will it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> See what I did? Wow. There. That's funny. I like mm. it. Thanks. Come to one or come to both and get a sweet deal on tickets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be great fun. Um and I hope to see as many of you guys there as humanly possible. I think that's all I have for this week, though. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Uh, no. Well, yeah. Yeah, do it. Yeah, okay. So if you are thinking of coming to our October 28th show, that's the Friday night at the Ferry Station or Ferry mm-hmm. Park, we are going to dress up. As Camp We Would Be Dead. Yes, that is Camp We Would Be Dead night. Mm-hmm. So Holly and I are going to wear our camp shirts and probably do like spooky makeup You'll or something. You'll see. It's a special surprise. But, well, yeah, but what I would like is anybody that is coming, if you guys would like to join in on the costume, that would be really fun to have you in the audience like that. Yeah, if you have a shirt, wear your shirt. Mm-hmm. Or you can, if you can't get a shirt in time, then just like dress in 70s camp attire. You feel campy. Yeah. We love it. Mm -hmm. Costumes are not necessary. But they are encouraged. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love costumes. I know. Wear them. And then Sunday at the brewery, uh, we will have a costume contest. We are all out costuming that night. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you about our costumes. Those are a surprise. Yes. They're so good, though. So bring Mm it. Yep. And uh, so the event at the brewery is free to attend, but if you would like to get the VIF pass, which includes a very special We Would Be Dead gift item. Oh my God, you guys want this gift. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Then that'll be $25 and just message us and we will put your name on the list. Yeah, you'll get the special gift. We'll make sure you have a seat because Mm -hmm. seating in that room is limited. And yeah. It'll be a great time. Yeah, absolutely. And then same thing for Friday night, too. So there are tickets for that show on yeah, Friday. Yeah, that show is ticketed. It is uh, $20 a ticket, but just message us and we will share with you some special deals that we are doing for that as well. <gasps> Love a special deal. To get an upgrade and things like that. Yeah, come party with us for yes. spooky season. I'm so excited. Me too. Live shows are always so much fun, especially around Halloween. And mm-hmm. and I will take any opportunity to wear a costume. Yes. So. Absolutely. And we were we are in a slightly different area this year at the brewery. So yeah. we're just a little bit more secluded. It's which quieter. Which will help with um, some of the sound that we had, mm-hmm. some of the issues we had last year. Uh, but we're all very excited and they're excited to have us. 
yeah, we're going to tell some vampire stories and tell you about the origins of Count Dracula, which is going to be real fun. So. Yeah. I love vampires. I know you do. They're the best. Mm-hmm. We will They're not just the sweetest little suckers. None of them are going to be the sparkly kind. No, just, that's fine. Spoiler alert. All right, then. On with the show. September 11th, 2004. Americans silently remember the terrorist events that occurred just three years prior. President Bush had just accepted the Republican Party's nomination for re-election that November, and a deadly hurricane seemed to be barreling towards the Florida Keys. A full evacuation of the Keys had been issued on the 10th, and residents were scrambling for higher ground, hoping to return home in a couple of days to find their houses still intact. I know what that feels like. Cape May has been evacuated a couple times, and it is like, it's pretty nerve-wracking. It really is. And yeah. a lot of people are really sitting there going like, okay, do I have to leave? Mm-hmm. Do I not have to leave? It's it's just like a rough place to be in. And hurricanes, like, they love Florida. They just do. They just are attracted to Florida. Florida and Louisiana, all the hurricanes love you so much. So for many residents, this probably wasn't their first rodeo, but that doesn't make it any less scary. Mm-hmm. Michelle Lynn Jones had been watching the news carefully. Her aunt and uncle lived in the Keys, and she was worried about them. And so, when the evacuation call went out, she was more than happy to offer them a place to stay. She felt fortunate to be in a position to help out when she could. Michelle had always been very close with her family, especially her mother and her aunt Terry. Michelle and her mother, Mary Lou, cutest name ever, (laughs) talked on the phone nearly every day. And though she lived hours and hours away in North Carolina, Mary Lou made sure to stay up to date on everything that went on in her daughter's life. They're like a very cute little mother-daughter unit. I like it. Mm -hmm. Michelle was a kind and generous soul. If you needed something and Michelle had it, it was yours. That was just her way. She worked hard and had done quite well for herself in her 37 years on the planet. She had graduated high school and college then landed herself a job as a sales manager for infomercials and direct sales at the Golf Channel in Orlando. The whole ass channel just for golf. Yes, I've watched it. Really? Yeah. Did not know. Oh, yeah. I don't, you watch a whole round of golf? Well, yeah, I mean, I've watched it with my dad. Okay. That's just, instead of having like ESPN on, Mm -hmm, we just mm -hmm. had the Golf Channel on. Okay. All right. Well then, hey, maybe she contributed to your life. Yeah, for sure. So with this job came a level of financial security that allowed Michelle to buy a beautiful four-bedroom, two-bathroom, over 1,900-square-foot single-family home with a pool and a jacuzzi. Ooh. Yeah. It's like a really pretty home, and she bought it in January of 2003. The house was located at 390 Hickory Drive in Maitland, Florida. Maitland is in the greater Orlando area, which made it easy for her to get to work. So that's cool. She moved closer to work, got this big, beautiful home. Everything's coming up, Michelle. Right. Doing well. The house was beautiful and well-kept. Michelle had really made it a home. Michelle also filled her life with close friends. There were lots of gatherings and dinners out. She was always at a happy hour or a holiday party or brunch. So her life was full. Yeah, doing good. Pretty much like nailing it at life. I know. We should all we should all be so lucky. I hope I'm like that at 37. I'm past 37. (laughs) 
But like, I'm doing all right. You're doing great. Yeah, there you go. Get that validation. Yeah. Guys, we really need to fill that cup. Yeah, please fill it up. <laughs> Michelle's aunt and uncle, Charlie and Terry Brand, ages 47 and 46 respectively, had lived happily on Big Pine Key for the better part of the last 20 years. Now, just a ballpark guess. How many keys do you think there are in the Florida Keys? Like how many islands? Okay, okay. Um, the Florida Keys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would think like five. There are over eight hundred. Oh, isn't that insane? Wow. I some sources say like twelve hundred or more. There are so many little tiny islands. Oh, just wow. do the do a lot of them just have like one tree on them? How? What? Wow. Yeah, I was expecting. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna put down how many islands are in the Keys and like do a little research on them. And then I looked it up, and there were so many of them. I was like. Nope. <laughs> Malfunction. Can't. Well, good thing I have info on each and every one of them. <laughs> and go. <laughs> what if Leah just had like four hours of keys? Now? <laughs> Founded in 1453. <laughs> oh, God. No, but there are a lot of freaking keys. Who knew? Not wow. not us for sure. Yeah, I guess they just, well, from like a map, they probably look connected, but they're probably separated. An island chain is like, you know, like you said, like five. I thought at the most, there'll be like maybe eight to 10 of them. Mm-hmm. No. no. Yeah, they're, they're just all separate. Well, they're probably, I wonder if they're just all like privately owned too. I don't, I don't know. A lot of them are like, like Big Pine Key, which I had never heard of, which is where these people live. Okay. There's around 5,000 residents on this island. Mm. So people live there and they work there and there's a whole community. And that's one of the, like, smaller ones I had never heard of. Hmm. So, I don't know. I guess there's just a lot of stuff going on out there. Okay. Yeah. And hurricanes love them. The Brants loved the home they had created there on Big Pine Key, but when the storm drew near, they knew they had to leave for their own safety. So, they were of the mind, like, yeah, we gotta go. Mm-hmm. And so, they packed their bags, boarded up their house, and went to Michelle's. Charlie and Terry arrived at 390 Hickory Avenue that September 11th, early in the day. They dropped off their things and then went to pay a visit to Charlie's dad, who lived nearby, then came back and decided to have some drinks and enjoy their time with Michelle. So they're like, we get to visit with our niece, who we like. She's really fun. And she's, Michelle is 37. So, you know, she's a niece, but there's only a 10-year age gap there. So they're kind of like peers. Okay. So they're like, yeah, we're going to hang out, have some drinks, make the best of this. Mm-hmm. Not like we don't know anyone that's had a hurricane party. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> and though the storm had threatened the Keys, the weather in Maitland was just fine. It was sunny and 85 degrees. There's a strong breeze, about 12 to 15 miles an hour off the coast, but nothing that isn't nice to sit by a pool during. So mm-hmm. they were good. Michelle also called her friends, Debbie and Lisa. These are like her besties and invited them to come over as well because she was the kind of person that wanted her friends and family to all know each other. Right. So everybody kind of talked and could hang out and it was nice. Unfortunately, Debbie and Lisa weren't able to hang out at that time. They're like, oh, sorry, we're busy. But Michelle made plans to have dinner with Debbie later in the week. And Lisa said, you know, she would get back to her and they would hang out. So it was was just like, oh, maybe later. So on Monday the 13th, Michelle called Lisa and invited her over again. Lisa said she had plans to go out to dinner that night, but she could come over afterwards. Okay. Hang out and have some drinks. However, no sooner had Lisa finished getting herself ready to go out for the evening than she received another call from Michelle. Michelle said this time that on second thought, maybe Lisa better not come over that night. 
She said that her um, aunt and uncle, Charlie and Terry, had gotten like a little bit too drunk during dinner and got into a really heated argument, Mm. which was uncharacteristic for them. She said because it was like so awkward and tense, they were not very good company. By this point, the hurricane had passed because it was Monday now. And Terry had wanted to go home. They had told all their friends that they were evacuating, but they should be back by Monday. That's when everybody said they should be able to come home. And it was Monday, but Charlie refused to leave. He was like, no, 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 we have to stay another night. We have to. And she couldn't understand why. It didn't make any sense to her. But their bags were packed and everything was ready. But for some reason, Charlie just dug in his heels and said they had to stay the night. Weird. Super weird. So Michelle was exhausted by this. You know, there's arguing going on in your home, your family's tense. It's very tiring. So she told Lisa that she just wanted to go to bed. She would say goodbye to them in the morning and then her house would be her own again. And Lisa said she totally understood and that the two of them could catch up later. And then they said goodbye and hung up. Don't you just like love people in their 30s? They're just like, oh, you don't want me to come over tonight? I guess I'll just stay home. Oh, what a tragedy. (laughs) I got ready. And they're just like in their PJs Mm -hmm. still. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I'm going out to dinner first. Yeah. (laughs) So busy. So then after that, Michelle stopped answering her phone. Oh. Yeah. She didn't show up for dinner plans that she had made with Debbie, which wasn't like her. Mm -hmm. And she seemed to not have contact with anyone she knew. Debbie called, Lisa called, everybody called, but Michelle never answered. Michelle's friends had begun to worry. Mary Lou had begun to worry as well. She hadn't talked to her daughter in days. She called on Monday. She called on Tuesday. And by Wednesday, she knew that something was wrong. Yeah. That's just, yeah, clearly something's not Mm -hmm. good. Mary Lou then decided to call Debbie to ask for help. She asked Debbie if she would stay on the phone call with Mary Lou. So they're going to keep the phone call live. And Debbie's going to drive over to Michelle's house and check on her. So basically, her mom is like, I want to hear you checking on her. I want to know what's happening in real time. So smart. Yeah, good mom. That's like good, good momming. Mm -hmm. Debbie was a little afraid she might be walking into something bad because she's like, I I don't know what this is going to entail. Yeah. She's like, can you call Lisa? Yeah. (laughs) Lisa seems like a really good person for this job. She's already dressed to go out. Oh, my God. But Debbie knew that, like, this was something that needed to happen, so she agreed to go. Guys, um, I just have to tell you, you can call the police to do a welfare check. Yeah. You never need to put anyone in this position. <laughs> Debbie, you did not need to go. No. Debbie, you didn't have to go. Mary Lou, you did not have to make a friend go. The police would have just gone. Yeah. FYI. Yeah. But still, it's like, I know everybody always feels like, oh, I don't want to, like... Bother the police. No, I bother know. them. That's their job. I, I pay them yeah. to bother them. Yeah. It's been a few days. You haven't heard from your loved one. They can just cruise on over and see if she's yeah. all right. That's fine. Do you pay taxes? Bother the police. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> like a siren on it. Do you pay taxes? Bother the police. <laughs> we'll never get pulled over. No. Everyone will love us. <laughs> So Debbie is a good soldier and she she's doing it. She drives over to Michelle's house, parks the car, knocks on the front door, and there is no answer. And then she notices that 
Both cars are in the driveway. So Charlie and Terry's car is there and Michelle's car is there. Suspicious. Have to be home. Yeah. Yeah. Very suspicious. Or sus, as kids say. Yeah. But the house is silent and still, which is unnatural. Because it's not late at night when she's doing this. It's like a, you know, waking hour. So then Debbie tries to open the front door. She's like, all right, nobody answers. Maybe it's open, but it's locked. But she has a key because she's that kind of best friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the key doesn't do it. It, The the door is, some sources say the door, like the key isn't working in the door. And others say there's like a deadbolt in the door. So she can't, the key's not going to do it. It's clearly locked from the inside. So she thinks, okay, I'll try the back door. Goes around to the back door. That is also locked. So she's like, all right, there's one more point of entry. I'll, I'll see if I can get in the garage. At the time, the garage door apparently, according to sources, has a great many windows, which makes it easy to see inside this garage. Now, the garage door is the kind that you push upward mm-hmm. because I have obviously went on to Realtor and Zillow and looked at all the pictures of this house. Obviously. So those those garage doors, in my experience, don't could never really be described as all windows. They have like the four, but the description of the store says it's all windows. Mm. So it's very easy to see inside. But at this point in time, the garage door is totally solid. There's no windows on it. Okay. They could have swapped it out. But also, this house has a completely glass sunroom. Part of me is like, are people really meaning the sunroom? Okay. But every source says garage. So I'm going to say garage. Because it's one of the few things that every source agrees upon. There's a lot of argument in this case. But just so you people, all of our people know, I, I'm not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. Either way, the, the garage doors are solid now. So Debbie gets to this garage area and describes it as like very openly glassed. So you can see into the area very well at this time of day. And what she sees is a body hanging from the rafters in the garage by the neck from a length of knotted bed sheets. And after she looks for a second, it's pretty clear that it's Charlie. And it's pretty clear that he's dead. So she panics a little, Mm -hmm. as we all would. Hangs up the phone with Mary Lou, because remember, she's still on the phone with Michelle's mom. Right. She's like, oh my God, buddy, click, and then calls the damn cops. Okay. So now we have the authorities coming in. I'm so glad she didn't try to go in the house at that point in time. Like, I think I might have run inside. My lizard brain sees a crisis and goes into like helping mode, which would not have been helpful in this situation. And I would have been traumatized for life. Right. But still, a lot of us would have went straight for go inside. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't do that. If you're in that situation ever, don't be be like Debbie. Don't be like me. Right. So. I would have like pulled you. I'd be like, Holly. No, no, no. Stay <laughs> out here. Call the damn cops. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> you literally cannot do anything. <laughs> no. You're only going to traumatize yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so shortly after receiving the 911 call, officers and investigators arrive on the scene. They enter through the garage. So I guess you could open it. Either that or they were able to force it open. Well, it sounds like Debbie didn't necessarily try to she open didn't. the garage. She just was able to see through and saw. Right his body, and then called. Exactly. She didn't try. So either it was open or they were able to force it open. And when they did, the first thing that hit them was the fact that it's suffocatingly hot. Mm -hmm. Because a a garage isn't, you don't air condition your garage. No, The rest of the home is. Yeah, exactly. It's Florida in September, so it's very, very Mm -hmm. hot. Charlie's body hung from the rafters motionless, which is very creepy in general. And next to it, 
was a ladder that had been kicked over. And this is all painting a pretty clear picture that Charlie had died by suicide. Mm -hmm. And judging by the state of his body and the smell hanging in the hot and fetid September air, he had been dead for a couple days at that point. Okay. Yeah. Cautiously, investigators then entered the house. And the smell did not dissipate, Mm. which is a bad sign. Lead investigator Rob Hemmert would later say, quote, it was just a nice home. It had that feminine kind of feel to it, all of those nice decorations, and the aroma of her home was masked by death, the smell of death. So sad. It is sad. Investigators moved cautiously through the house, but quickly discovered Terry Brandt slumped on the couch in a pool of her own blood, dead. She had been stabbed seven times in the chest. The wounds were forceful and appeared to have occurred in rapid succession. There were no signs of a struggle. This had been a sudden and vicious attack. Perhaps Terry had fallen asleep on the couch or she was, that's where she was staying while in the house. I mean, there are other bedrooms, but we don't know what Michelle was using them for. Or maybe Terry liked to sleep with the TV on. Who knows? Mm. But it did appear that she had never seen this attack coming. This discovery may have been horrifying, but unfortunately, the worst was yet to come. When investigators got to Michelle's bedroom, they were met with the most horrifying scene any of them had ever come across. Seasoned officers were excusing themselves to go outside and be sick. This was not a murder. It was a torturous horror film come to life. Most of Michelle's remains were on her bed, but her head had been removed and placed on a bedside table facing her body. Her hair carefully brushed away from her eyes, seemingly so she could see what was happening to the rest of her. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I don't, I hate that fact. And I assume it was on a bedside table. Every description says it was placed to the side facing her body. So like it must have been on a nightstand or something. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. it couldn't really be on the floor. You wouldn't, you know what I mean? Thankfully, there are not pictures of this crime scene because... I don't want to see that, but I will come across them if they're there and I'm looking things up. So, didn't have to. Michelle's breasts had also been removed and placed to the side on the floor. Her left leg had been removed and cast aside. Her chest cavity and abdomen were split open. She had been disemboweled and her heart and lungs were carefully removed and also placed to the sides. Yeah. The scene was covered in gore and viscera and officers were in complete and utter shock. So this is a a completely dismantled human being. It's beyond the pale of what most people will ever even think of or experience in their lives. It's like a lot. And we're in small town Florida. I mean, Florida is extreme on all sides of the coin, but like this is a lot for these people, and I feel very badly for them. Autopsies would later reveal that Michelle had died from a single stab wound, and the rest had thankfully, been done post-mortem. So while none of it is like, you're never going to feel better about any of that, at least she didn't suffer all of those injuries while still alive. It wasn't vivisection. Yeah, Yeah, it was, thank God she didn't have to know any of it. According to the investigation, Michelle, Charlie, and uh, Terry had eaten fish for dinner, then drank wine because they found remnants of dinner had been cooked and eaten and cleared. They found the wine bottle and glasses. And then somewhere down the line, things just went horribly wrong. Hmm. 
Now, as we have found out um, when speaking to medical examiners in the past, you can't really nail down a time of death to like a minute or an hour. You can just say it was probably uh, this many days ago. So we don't really know what time this all went down. If I were a betting woman, I would say that it was after the women had gone to sleep. Okay. Because they didn't seem to fight back at all. Okay. It was just like done, you know. Mm -hmm. Charlie had murdered his wife and savagely torn apart his niece. Because I can't even call that murder when it was clearly something that was so much worse than that. Both women had been killed with kitchen knives from the knife block in that house. So it was knives he took from the kitchen and used on them. Very Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. And after he was done, Charlie removed his bloody clothing, placed it in the bathroom sink, took a shower, changed clothing, went to the linen closet, got a bedsheet, walked out to the garage, drug a ladder into the center of the floor, tied one end of the sheet securely to the rafters and the other around his neck, then kicked the ladder out from under him and was done. Damn. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of things that one might be thinking after hearing about that harrowing discovery. <laughs> That's a lot. Retellings always start with the crime scene. And when I first heard about it, I thought, well, this must have been a man whose tether totally snapped. And he committed these acts in like a violent rage, like something made him really mad and he did all this wild stuff. But I think I subtly missed the point because I wasn't there, thank God. It's subtle though. When friends and relatives were contacted and police began questioning people, they got the same reaction over and over again. People just couldn't believe that Charlie would do something like this. He was a quiet man, a little eccentric to be sure, but he was a good friend and a good neighbor, and he absolutely worshipped his wife. According to their friends, Charlie and Terry had a peaceful and loving marriage. They rarely argued. They were very much in love with one another. They were always like, they're like a very PDA couple. They like to hold hands and give kisses and hugs. Uh, They were never shy about how they felt. Um, They also, they were so affectionate. They made each other lunch every day before they left for their respective jobs because food tastes better when it's made by someone who loves you. Oh, that's so cute though. Right. And then this happened. Right. But again, like, it seems that they're a very happy couple. hmm There was no history of cheating or money trouble. Both Charlie and Terry had good jobs. Neither of them had a reputation of poor work performance or violent outbursts things that we might look for in a case, they're not there. They had hobbies that they enjoyed together. So they like to be out on a boat. They like to go fishing. Uh, They like to, they they were outdoorsy kind of, but they seemed to choose to spend their time together. They didn't have hobbies apart. Everything was done as a pair. Many friends referred to them as the perfect couple. Charlie was always seen as kind, reliable, and helpful. And Terry was as sweet and wonderful as they come. Terry's best friend, a woman named Melanie Fetcher, said Terry and Charlie were inseparable. Quote, if my husband could love me one third the amount that Charlie loved Terry, I'd be the luckiest woman in the world. End quote. Well, that might be the saddest statement of the whole episode. Right. Or she'd be dead. So don't envy it because it didn't go well. True. Okay. Indeed, most people who knew Charlie and Terry, and for that matter, most people who knew Michelle as well, thought, quote, this just seems impossible. Most people thought that, but not all. Ooh, Mm -hmm. who are these others? One person learned of this terrible event and went cold all over. She closed her eyes, 
half frightened of what had happened, half grateful he was dead, and thought, not again. Oh. Mm-hmm. A few days after the crime scene was discovered, police gathered Charlie's family together for a briefing. Now, this is not uncommon. This is something like, okay, well, what do you know what happened in his life? Let's tell it. We're going we're gonna to give you the details of what had happened, you know, all together. But Charlie's sister, Angela, did not show up. Charlie was one of four. His sister named Angela and then other twin sisters who were even younger than her. So everybody else is there. Angela's not. Well, kind of not. Angela was sitting in the parking lot in her parked car further away from the building. She watched her family enter and exit the police station before walking in alone and asking to speak to a detective. Once she was face-to-face with our lead investigator, the only thing she could say in a very small voice strangled by tears was, I have to tell you something. Cryptic! Detective Hemmert took her into a small room and listened as Angela revealed a shocking family secret that had been buried for decades. Angela explains that her family used to live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. They moved to Florida in the early 70s after a horrible incident. Then Detective Hemmert presses record on his tape recorder, and the following is a synopsis of the interview that occurred. Angela begins by promising not to cry, then explains that the incident took place on January 3rd, 1971, at around 9 or 10 p.m. She was 15, her brother Charlie was 13, and her twin sisters were babies. The family had just gotten a color TV, and so they were all sitting around it watching a show called FBI, starring an actor named Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., which I thought was like a really funny detail to remember Mm -hmm. because what a cumbersome name for an actor that I would never consider to be that famous. Right. Yeah, but that's such a funny name. Mm -hmm. I could see them like making fun of the name or, you know, like that sticking. Yeah, well, she says his name in the, because you can listen to this interview. I'll put Mm -hmm. a link uh, for, it's only four and a half minutes long. I'll put a link to it in in our notes this week. But she specifically is like, you know, that show with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. (laughs) I'm like, what? But you remember, that just goes to show that like in traumatic events, you remember weird specific details. And that Mm -hmm. was one of them. The show ended. So FBI is over. And then Angela says she went up to her bedroom to read a book in her bed before she went to sleep, as she did every single night. Her mother, who was heavily pregnant at the time, ran herself a bath and sat in the warm water reading Time magazine. Her father was also in the bathroom, standing at the sink, shaving. Like a charming domestic moment. Mm -hmm. Then, out of nowhere, Angela said she heard loud noises, which she perceived to be firecrackers. She also acknowledges in the interview that it didn't make any sense for firecrackers to be going off in her house at that point in time, but she didn't know how else to explain it. In her words, quote, what other loud noise was there? Which is like such a, I felt like that was such a, like a touching little kid thing to say. Mm-hmm. Like, like there aren't any other loud noises. It has to be firecrackers. Mm-hmm. Curious about the ruckus, Angela began to pull off her covers and get out of bed when she heard her father yell, Charlie, don't, or Charlie, stop, followed by her mother screaming. Her mother screamed and then yelled, Angela, call the police. And then it stopped. These things all seemed to happen in the span of a minute, Angela emphasizes how fast everything went. But by the time Angela got to her feet, 
her brother Charlie had entered her room with a gun in his hand. Mm. In retrospect, she knows it was a gun, but at the time, she didn't even really know what was in his hand. Later, they realized it was a gun that her father had kept loaded in his nightstand table. Okay. This is in the 70s when you could keep a loaded gun in your bedside table and think that was fine. We all know now that we have to have gun safes. And strangely enough, um, on the the Zillow listing for Michelle's house, now it's not listed now, but the old listing, the last time they sold it, I think was like a year ago, there's a gun safe in the garage. So I'm mm. like, oh, well, we all know now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Charlie enters Angela's bedroom with a gun in his hands and he brings it up to aim at her and pulls the trigger. But by this time, instead of hearing a bang, Angela heard a click. Mm -hmm. The gun had thankfully run out of bullets. Okay. Realizing he had emptied the gun, Charlie threw it on the floor, and in a moment of quick thinking, Angela then kicked it under the bed. Mm -hmm. This later allowed police to be able to find it and use it in the case, so he couldn't get it or dispose of it at all. Smart. Good thinking, Angela. Charlie then lunged at her. He began to swing, and the two physically started fighting. So he's like fist fighting her now. He's like punching her and trying to get her to the ground. The event covered Angela in blood and bruises, and she says that she has never before or since had a physical altercation in her life. She's like, I don't fight. I never fought. And all of a sudden, I'm in this fight. Charlie fought her to the floor, then sat on top of her and began to strangle her. Oh. Yeah. Angela remembers drifting in and out of consciousness as he clamped down on her windpipe because as we've said before, it takes a long time to strangle somebody. Right. People think it's going to be quick because it is in the movies, but it's not. Mm -hmm. While they are locked in this struggle, Angela pretty much could only look at Charlie's face at this point, right? Because he's right above her strangling her. This is a very personal act. Strangulation is a really personal, really angry way to kill somebody. A lot of times... um. Forensic psychologists and authorities will describe this as something like, you know, you, you, you are watching someone die. Mm-hmm. It's not quick. So you have to really want them dead if you're going to strangle them. But while she's looking in Charlie's face, it doesn't look like Charlie. Like she knows it is, but his eyes are not there. They are vacant and black. Michael Myers. And he seemed completely mechanical and glazed over. Remember, this whole time, he's not speaking. He's not talking. He's not reacting. He's, his face is expressionless. He's just doing. He's just trying to eliminate everyone in his home, basically. Yeah. She describes him in a, as in a trance-like state, like she could see the madness take over, is what she calls it. And he is just hell-bent on this task. As he struggles to kill her, eventually... Angela just watches the look on her brother's face change Mm. as though the trance or the haze or the madness lifts and he goes from cold-blooded killing machine to 13-year-old Charlie. She just watches it clear like mist. He looks Angela in the eyes, stops choking her, and says, what am I doing? To which she replies, I don't know, but I think you shot dad. And Charlie replies, oh, I did. Then Angela says, I don't know, but get off me so we can figure it out. And then he did. Angela tells Detective Hemmert that she knew that he, that she had to get out of the house at this point. She's just like, I I gotta save myself. I don't know what he's gonna do. I just watched him, didn't watch it, but like, I know he did horrible things and he tried to kill me. 
Right. Charlie looks at Angela and says, you're not going to leave me, are you? And then growing tearful, Angela tells the detective, of course I said no, knowing I would run out the door. And I did. Well, this is all a quote. As soon as I thought he was far enough away, I ran. Then she asks the detective, quote, have you ever seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? He says he had. And she replies, quote, I saw it once in my life. I could never see it again. You know the girl screaming? The way she ran, screaming? That was me. I was just a little girl. I was running through the snow in my bloody nightgown, torn, just screaming. I got to the first house right across the street. I didn't even knock on the door. I turned the knob and it was locked. And then I ran to the next house. And by the time I got to the next house, my brother had apparently come down the steps. He was outside. And all my life, I've heard him screaming after me. Angie, you promised you wouldn't leave me. You promised you wouldn't leave me. But I did. End quote. Oh, man. I know. That is, like, heavy. And so much like the murder house episode we just did. Yeah. Where she runs to the neighbor's house, the, the daughter does. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It's just so sad because, like, having a sibling, mm-hmm. too, just, like— I don't oh, have I one, just, but I imagine— I can, well, yeah, and, like, even thinking of, like, your kids. My kids, yeah, that's awful. That's exactly how they would talk to each other. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Heartbreaking and and scary. She also, I have to say, like, she made hard but very good choices in that moment. Like, she really did save herself. Yeah, what about the, like, little baby twins? I'll get to that. Okay. They're fine, by the way. And everybody. (laughs) Everybody. What's happening? Now, in that moment, most people would think, if you were, like, the detective, in the room, hearing this startling confession, you think, holy shit, this guy had a history. And a lot of people did react that way when the news of this event broke out. So when other people in Charlie's life found this out, they were shocked because nobody knew. Okay. But Detective Hemmer thought, I knew it. You see, when he saw the way Charlie had surgically taken Michelle Jones apart, he knew that this hadn't been his first time. Charlie didn't want to leave that night because he knew what he was going to do. Mm. And he knew what he was going to do because he had done it before. Many, many, many times. He just hadn't realized when or how. Oh, so this isn't just like 30 years later, he like flips again. There's more. Oh my God, Mm -hmm. I didn't know. Yeah, nobody knew. Charlie's records after this had been sealed because he was a child when he did this. So it had never come up. And cops are like looking at, you know, Charlie's records. There's nothing there. Also, it was in another state. When he was 13, Charlie, in case the events are not clear enough, had shot and killed his pregnant mother in the bathtub. And his father, who he had shot first, survived the attack. As did Angela and his twin baby sisters, who never knew anything happened that night. Family members told them that their mother had been killed in a car accident. (gasps) Yep. And they never thought to doubt it. So they didn't find out until after Charlie committed these murders in 2004 that he had also killed their mother, shot their father, and tried to kill their sister when they were babies asleep in their cribs. So, oh my gosh. How fucked up would that be? Angela and her dad had to keep this secret. Yes. Well, her dad chose to keep it secret. Well, I know. Angela had to. Yeah. I can't. Can you imagine? 
No. So many people knew this guy. So many people knew him. He just existed yeah. out in the world with friends and a wife and stuff. And nobody knew he cold blood murdered his family. Yeah. Well, just his mother, well, his, I suppose. Yeah. An unborn sibling. Right. But he tried. He thought he had killed his father because he shot him mm-hmm. and he was down. Mm-hmm. When authorities arrived on the scene, they found uh, his father, who I believe his name is Herbert, slumped on the ground in a puddle of his own blood with shaving cream on his face. Oh, my gosh. So he was, like, rushed to the hospital and rescued, but he looked dead. And so then, did he get any help? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. By the time Angela made it to the second house that fateful night, because remember, she tried to get into one house, couldn't do it, went to the next house. And so the next house, I guess the door was, yeah, the door was open, and she, like, flung it open and ran into the house, and her neighbor was like, what the fuck? But this is a neighborhood where everyone knew each other. So they were, of course, like, Angela, what is going on? And she's Mm -hmm. like, my brother shot my parents. You have to call the cops. But while this is happening, the first house, the one where she was like probably jiggling the doorknob on. Right. After they hear the the knob on their door being jiggled, they then hear a knock. 16-year-old Sandy Radcliffe, a resident of the home, they're, they're the daughter that lived there, opens the door and finds her neighbor, Charlie, standing there. Charlie looks at her calmly and says, Sandy, I just shot my mom and dad. And then Sandy called the police. Charlie's father couldn't figure out why on earth he had done what he did. He just kept saying, I don't know why my son did this. I don't know why my son did this. But he didn't say that his son didn't do it. Yeah. Which to police was very important, obviously. And perhaps knowing this guy as we will in the future, had he had time to think about it, he may have said, he may have tried to cover it up, but he didn't. Charlie had loved his mother desperately. Locals called him a mama's boy. Nobody understood why he went after her. I think it was to punish his dad, but we'll get there. Okay. When the police asked Charlie why he did it, so this is like later on in an interview room being, you know, questioned formally, Charlie replied that it was, quote, a combination of things. First, he talked about how he had had issues at school because he didn't like changing schools. He had a really hard time adapting to change. And the Brants had moved from Connecticut to Indiana just three years before this had happened. So what's really funny is that I was going to be like, what, are they from Connecticut trying to keep their family secret? Yup. <laughs> oh, they are I from Connecticut. I was like going to say that. That's hilarious. Oh, no. Oh. They are. And it also goes with my theory that all serial killers are from Indiana. So uh, yeah. we're just proving everything this okay. week. Okay. Just checking off the boxes. That and a thousand with Michael Myers. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he did not like leaving Connecticut either. Uh, Charlie said, quote, everything just sort of snapped in my mind. I felt like I had never felt before. And then he told the officers a rather haunting story. In the days before the shooting, the Brants had been on vacation. Charlie and his father had gone out hunting with their dog one day. They were hunters, something they liked to do. Charlie loved his dog. And while they were out, the dog ran into the brush and wouldn't come back out for his father. Charlie's father called the dog. Charlie's father tried to get the dog, but the dog kept running back into the brush and wouldn't obey. And so Charlie's father shot it (gasps) and left it there dead. I'm sorry, guys, the dog does not live in this case. I rarely have a dog died moment, but this one does. What a wild thing to do. Yeah, just shoot the family dog and leave it there. Charlie remembers being shocked and forcing himself not to cry. He remembers being like, I can't cry. I just have to keep going, which I don't understand why, but... Because he's trying to be a strong boy. I guess a little soldier. 
After this, Charlie has three separate psychiatric evaluations. So three professional psychiatrists evaluate Charlie and nobody can figure out what triggered this insanely violent event. Okay. Oh, okay. So not after the dog. Sh- no, after sh- the, like after the family the shooting. Event. Yeah. Okay. That the dog is the only reason anyone could give. They're like, mm-hmm. I guess this triggered something in him when he watched his dad I mean, kill the dog. Could it also be that his mom's pregnant again too? I thought that, like, but, but I guess they don't really mention that. But really what they're looking for, because they're trying to figure out why someone commits a crime, yeah. they're looking for a mental illness because mm-hmm. that's their thing. And yeah. they could not find signs of one. Mm-hmm. They said, you know, like there, uh, there's no diagnosis to make. Clearly something is wrong, but we don't have any technicalities. We don't have anything to say. When asked on stand, all three of them, when they when they said like, so why did he do this? All three mental health professionals just said, I don't know. Which again is Michael Myers level scary because mm-hmm. you don't know. This is a kid who just flipped off and then murdered his mother and tried to kill his father. And right. nobody can tell us why. But they didn't have like theories of, no. I mean, there's so many mental illnesses that Mm-mm. have a switch. That's the worst part. First of all, it's 1971. Okay. Mental health care is not in its infancy, but yeah. it's not doing the best it's ever done. Mm-hmm. But no, they didn't. And this was also a time where people loved to blame schizophrenia on everything. And they didn't. Well, that's what I, that's what I mean. Like, that was, schizophrenia was a thing. Yeah. So, like, even Mm-mm. to just call it that. But he had no other symptoms. He did not have any other psychotic moments. If this was a psychotic break, it was incredibly short. If he was, 13 is a very young age. To, well, that's the other thing. Well, okay, yeah. I will say, in the early 70s, they didn't think you could have schizophrenia okay. as a child. Okay. We I'm going to say that sounds like, yeah, it would be, there was no other instances. But well, we he's covered, 13. This you know, might have been his first one. Yeah, but we did another case where it was in a similar period of time where they were like, well, you can't be bipolar as a child. Right, right. For a very long time, a lot of these disorders, professionals thought did not exist in children. Mm-hmm. And they are, a bipolar is kind of uncommon, but schizophrenia is very uncommon in yeah. children. It's extremely uncommon to you have like that kind of break with reality as a kid. Yeah. So they just said, and, and at the time, he is a lucid, perfectly well-mannered child who loves his family. Everyone has nothing but good things to say about him. Nobody thinks he's sketchy. Nobody has ever wondered about him. They're like, this is this weird, isolated blip. Mm-hmm. We cannot explain it. So, because Charlie was too young at the time in the state to be tried for murder, he was sent to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation where he remained for just one year mm-hmm. before being released into his father's custody. Okay. So basically, he just had to stay there until his father was ready to take him back. Okay. His father then took all four children when Charlie was released and immediately moved to Florida and never spoke of the incident again. Dad never said a word. Yeah. Indiana newspapers reported the event as a freak occurrence. So when you look in newspapers, if you're trying to find an article with some information about this, you're not going to. It really just says that a quiet, kind boy snapped, something awful happened, and then he's going to be better. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of detailed information. Something has gone wrong with, in his head, and that's it. Now, you and I might be thinking, um, huh, 
that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. You want me to believe that the public just like bought that and they were like, oh, okay, sometimes kids just murder people. It's fine. Well, they did. But that's just how it is with kids sometimes. Mm -hmm. We don't want to believe that they can just like Michael Myers go black in the eyes and simply give in to the evil in their minds. We don't even want to believe that evil ever lives in their minds. They're children. But evidence sure does tell us that they can and do. It would be comforting to say this was a very isolated incident, but I don't think that's the case. Leslie, I mean, maybe you can help me out here. Have there ever been, like, in the history of the world, any other killer kids you can think of? Or is just, like, just this one? Well, unfortunately, there's, like, as many as the Florida Keys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so many. So many. <laughs> Who knew there were so many in both regards? Yeah. Uh, but I have a few for you today. Okay. So our first story is from England, specifically Scotswood, which is an inner suburb of Newcastle upon Tin. Ooh, Newcastle upon Tin. But I like Tin. <laughs> All right. So many of our listeners might already know this name, but Mary Bell was ten years old when she committed her first murder in 1968, strangling a four-year-old boy. The following year, she strangled a three-year-old boy. For the second murder, she had an accomplice, Norma Bell, no relation. Weird. Same last name, no relation? Yeah, weird, right? Super weird. Yeah. I kept thinking that it was like her sister. Also a kid? Also, yeah, her friend. God! So she helped her out for the second murder, and they carved their initials on the boy's body using scissors, as well as cut off his private parts. And they were arrested and tried. Before the trial, the girls were sent for psychological testing. The results of these tests revealed that Norma was intellectually delayed in a submissive character who displayed, who easily displayed emotion. Whereas Mary was a bright yet cunning character prone to sudden mood swings. So this is like a folly ado, like girls, Slenderman type situation. Yeah, exactly. It reminded me of the Slenderman stuff. Um, but Mary seemed a little bit even, like, more charismatic yeah. in a sense. Uh, she just, she, like, the story is just very, very evil. It's super. I know this story, and it's yes. incredibly mm-hmm. evil. And she didn't have, like, a sad delusion about something. She just, yeah, she, she just did awful things. Yeah. So Norma was acquitted for all charges, whereas Mary Bell was cleared of murder, but convicted of manslaughter of both boys on the grounds of diminished responsibility. And Mary served 12 years, only 12, before she was free and granted anonymity. Four years after her release, she gave birth to her daughter, and she now lives in England under a new name. And she's also a grandma now, too. And an author, right? Well, like a... I guess a co-author is just, someone else write wrote crime books. Oh, I don't know. I didn't read that. She has her own Le- book. Hold on, let me look because I th- I might be thinking of Juliet Hume. I don't. Yeah, who also murders somebody? Yes. As, you know. I think you're thinking of Juliet Hume. Uh, be wrong. That case is one that we will cover. It was something that fascinated yeah, was- me for a long time. So while Holly is looking that up, uh, that story, I only told a very small portion of it, but Mary Bell is something that we will probably cover in a, another episode. Yeah, because we might do it's like very a, interesting. Yeah, this case is gruesome, too. It's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of Juliet Hume. It doesn't say. Yep. Sorry, I was thinking of the wrong girl child murderer. 
There you go. Yeah. I know I read a whole bunch and I was like, I think that's the other person. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, the next child murder is Eric Smith. So Eric Smith killed four-year-old Derek Robbie, whom he came across while riding his bike through a local park in Steuben County, New York. 13-year-old Eric Smith bumped into Derek, who was walking alone. Eric then lured the small boy into a wooded area, strangled him, dropped two large rocks on his head, and then sodomized the body with a tree limb. Oh, my God. I will include a picture of this Mm -hmm. child. Yeah. It's just so sad, too, that, like, this boy was just alone. I know. It's just so young. He's just so young. He really is very little. It's awful. So Eric was eventually convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to the maximum term, then available for juvenile murderers at that time, which was, it's so funny because they're like, this, they make it sound like it would be small, but it was a minimum of, of nine years to life in prison. So it's still, it's oh, like a wide range. gap. Yeah, that's quite a lot. It could lot. be like a little bit. It could be like everything forever. Yeah. <laughs> So he has been refused parole eight times since 2001 and was waiting for his next parole hearing in 2018. But in 2005, Eric claimed that his family life was abusive and the effect upon him was a devastating, was as devastating as bullying. However, his inability to express emotion while saying such words led court psychologists to believe that Eric Smith could never fully be rehabilitated and released in society. So that seems promising. But then in October 2021, Uh. Smith was granted parole after 27 years of incarceration. He was scheduled to be released on November 17th, 2021. But this was delayed due to Smith not having approved residence. He was ultimately released from prison on February 1st, 2022. So just several months Oh my God, I hate that. I know. I mean, here's the thing, though, too. Like, it's it's so hard. I mean, it was a fucking... When you look at what he did, it's, yeah, like it's horrible. Yep. But it's also, like, he's... I don't know. He's still a kid. And it's, it's hard because with kid cases, a lot of times the way they are judged is by, like, intent and brutality. Mm-hmm. So this is something that doesn't look like it was, say, a panic murder or mm-hmm. something. It was, like, he... Wanted. It was like an opportunity, a crime of opportunity yeah, he, almost. he wanted to do all of the things he did. Yeah. And he made it horrible and painful for mm-hmm. this child, which is what makes him stand out from other, you right. know, cases. Oh, I don't know. I know. There's just... Uh, well, yeah. I have one more horrible one. You asked me to do this. Yeah, I did ask you to do you this. You asked me. He sure did. So, Jesse Pomeroy... What did he do? Well, let's go back to 1859. Oh, my God, let's. So we can say as much as we want because all these people are dead. And he's not going to, like, come to my house because he's been released from prison. No. Great. So on November 29th, the youngest person in history of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to be convicted of murder in the first degree was born. Oh, oh. His name was Jesse Pomeroy. He was the second of two boys. His brother, Charles, was only two years older than him. His, uh, Jesse's father, Timothy, was a veteran of the U.S. Civil War. Oh, boy. And his mother, Ruth, owned her own dressmaking shop. 
right, Which I thought was very progressive. Yeah, way to go, Ruth. Way to have a job. It sounds like from the story, from what I could gather, um, that his father was off to war for some of these parts. And so Ruth, like, really took care of the she, kids like, a lot. Rosie the Riveter, the situation. Yeah, I like, could be wrong. I have to look a little bit more deeply into this story. Okay. But um, that was kind of what I gathered All right, from it. That, but that makes sense. From 1871 to 1872, when Jesse was about 12 or 13, he began beating and sexually assaulting young boys. Ugh. Reports were coming in of several young boys who were individually enticed to remote areas and attacked by a slightly older boy, which in each case was very similar. The boys were beaten with a fist and a belt and in at least two of the attacks, a knife. Some of the boys were physically scarred permanently, yeah. but probably out of fear, the boys never, never tattled on Jesse. I don't know why they weren't saying who it was. I don't know if they didn't know he who it was. He must have threatened them or something. Something. Yeah. They were younger. He was the older kid. Um, mm-hmm. Also, there's a lot of um, like guilt and shame that mm-hmm. comes with stuff like that. And oftentimes when it's children, they believe that they're going to get in trouble if they say something. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Especially with sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So Jesse's mother, Ruth, from what it sounds like, is that she was, she was like, slightly aware of her son's actions. Oh, she all knew right. that, like, he was, there, there was something wrong with him <laughs> and decided that maybe starting over somewhere new would be for the best. So just like in our other story, she took yeah. her boys and she didn't move crazy far, but she did move to uh, South Boston. Unfortunately, Jesse continued to attack young boys despite Mm. the change of brick buildings. If if we go to another city, he's going to stop. Yeah. No, he's not. He's not. His penchant for violence only worsened with another assault. But this time, he was caught and sent to reform school in 1873. He was to be there until he was 18. But within a year, he was paroled and back home with his mom. And wouldn't you know it? Children began missing again. Oh, what a shocking discovery. Yeah. So, well, not again, but at this point, children had begun, like, to vanish. Also, reform school in 1873 was probably pretty freaking tough. Mm-hmm. Surprised he got out. Yeah. I know. I it's yeah. like not, they weren't super lenient. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe there was, like, too many people there. Or maybe it's he just was just being too crowded. There are too many bad yeah. boys. He looks like a photo of him kind of... I to look him up now. I want to see what he looks like. He looks like he could probably pull off being like a little saint in school so that he can like get sent home and then just being an asshole later. Gross. So he had been out on parole for barely a month when 10-year-old Katie Curran no. disappeared from her home. Since she was last seen at Ruth's shop where Jesse worked, authorities questioned him and searched the store but they didn't find anything. Five weeks later, however, Jesse's boot prints were discovered next to the body of four-year-old Horace Millen. The boy had been nearly decapitated and dumped on the beach. It was like the marsh of like the Dorchester Bay, I think. When police returned to question Jesse, they found scratches on his skin and blood on his clothes. So they were like, "Mm, okay, Uh, yeah. So Jesse was arrested on April 24th, 1874, and confessed after being confronted with Millen's body. So he had to, like, see what he did. <gasps> Ooh. Good, though. Mm-hmm. You did that. Yep. 
Then Ruth had to make the hard decision to sell her shop for much needed cash after the arrest. Oh, but the, still like Ruth, you should mm-hmm. have gotten your shit together. The very excited new tenants were horrified when they discovered the decomposing corpse of Katie Curran <gasps> in her basement. No, the new tenants? Yeah, they found the 10-year-old oh, girl. Oh, no. Oh, that's not fair. I know. So police confronted Jesse about this, and he confessed yet again. So mm-hmm. his trial was quick. He was found guilty and denied the insanity plea. Jury thought that he was too young to be sentenced to death, but the judge disagreed, despite Jesse only being 15. And the governor's office, however, refused to sign off on the judge's decision because they felt he was too young as well. And after a few years, it was decided that Jesse would live out a life sentence in solitary confinement in Massachusetts State Prison. A life sentence of solitary. Yes. Wow. And I think um, I think near the end, like the last maybe decade or two, uh, they let him kind of hang out with the rest, like just live like a normal prison life. Yeah. Oh, my God. What is wrong with this I know. kid? I think he was like even he got to be in a play <laughs> later Good in life in him. his 70s. Well, he was in yeah. a TV show on A&E. Well, his story was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's a really, it's a, it's a wild case. That was. That is nuts. This one just felt so scary. So when I found this one. That's even scarier. uh That he has this white film over his eyes. Yes. He has a birth defect. Yeah. There's a lot more to the story. So again, this is another one that I wanted to like (gasps) flesh out in a, in an episode. Yeah. That one fact though, I'm going to have to put a picture in because he is haunting looking mm-hmm. and the pictures of him are like him as an adult yeah. in prison yeah wow they call him boston's boy fiend oh yeah they have a lot of like little nicknames for, for him. our purposes that one's good though mm-hmm. so i just i also have to add in that lots of people are bullied and they don't do horrible shit like this so when oh, we yeah. talk about people like um eric What's his name? Like, Smith. oh, he might have been bullied or they might have had a hard time. It says that about Jesse Pomeroy, too, in the little tiny blurb I encountered looking at pictures. Like, he was bullied. Lots of people are bullied. We mm-hmm. can't, we can't, we got to stop blaming it on that. Right. <laughs> like, we got to yeah. stop. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Whew. Well, I guess kids uh, be doing horrible things. Yeah, for sure. Well, then there are so many more, but it was so sad. It is very sad. What's interesting is that most killer kid cases, they're killing other kids. Mm-hmm. Not Charlie. He went after parents. Right. Which does happen, but it doesn't seem it, that it happens as often. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's like a different, I mean, it has to be a different yeah. mechanism that does those things. But anyway. It's a, the couple of cases that I looked at where the parents or the kids did, say, kill their parents mm-hmm. or an adult. It was very clear as to what drove them there. So it wasn't yeah. as like this bewildering, you know? Nothing. Yeah. yeah. So after Charlie returned from his year in the mental institution, his father insisted he be folded right back into the family as though nothing happened. So he made it clear to Angela, like, I've told your sisters, oh, they're babies. So I don't even know if he had to at the time, but like, we're going to tell them that their mother died in a car accident. 
and you are to accept your brother back into the family as though nothing happened and love him and treat him normally and we are never to tell anyone and then they moved. Can you imagine being Angela? Like he tried to kill her. Right. And she just has to live in a house with him every day and sleep under the same roof as him every night. There's no way you'd ever sleep. You'd just be terrified your entire life. And then they moved to Florida where absolutely no one knew them and no one knew what Charlie had done and had a fresh start. Charlie went to school where he did well. He, he just was, seemed normal. He made friends and he graduated with a decent GPA. He went on to a local community college and just kind of was living a normal life. But in 1974, Charlie's father met a woman and the two got married. And Charlie's father, his new wife, Angela, and the twin girls all decided after that to move back to Indiana. But Charlie didn't want to go. So they left him behind to go to college in Florida, which feels really irresponsible when you know your kid has killed someone. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm sure Angela was just like, cool, bye. Yeah, I gotta go. (laughs) But trouble just seemed to kind of not be that far behind Charlie pretty much forever. He did get a degree in electronics and worked several good and reliable jobs as a radar technician before landing his position with Lockheed Martin. I believe he did the same thing. He was like some kind of radar tech. Then he met and married Terry in 1986 and uh, did not invite a single member of his family to the wedding. Okay. Nobody could come. And he never told Terry about that dark January day in 1971. No one in his new life knew. No one in Terry's family knew. But rest assured, when they finally found out and everything was over, they were pretty horrified and pissed off. Mm -hmm. Charlie and Terry bought their house in Big Pine Key and seemingly lived happily and without incident for like 20 years. Well, not entirely without incident, but the only one who knew that was Charlie. Back to the investigation. With the family killing revelation in hand and a strong sense that Charlie had done still more than shoot his parents and kill his wife and niece in mind, Detective Hemmert and his team headed out to Charlie and Terry's house on Big Pine Key. And if you're thinking that maybe there was a whole lot of weird and awful stuff there, well, you won't be disappointed. First of all, when the investigators arrived, the house wasn't just boarded up. It was sealed like Fort Knox. Detective Hemmert describes it like this, quote, I've never seen anything like it. Charlie took it to the extreme. Every piece of wooden panel that was cut for each window looked like it had been custom fit. The holes for the doorknobs on the French doors were meticulously cut and filled in, perfectly round circles. So this isn't just like, you know, when people board up shit for a hurricane, it's usually with like whatever they can find, pallets, pieces of plywood, things they broke apart. No, this was like, custom, sawed, perfectly puzzle piece fitting things that went right over windows. I mean, this doesn't weird me out because it's absolutely something my dad would do. But it also (laughs) takes a really long time. Yep. They didn't have a really long time. Did you just have these at the ready? Maybe. Uh, Well, if I lived in a hurricane place, absolutely. All right. I'd move in and cut everything. (laughs) To size. Have my custom pieces just waiting That way, when I have to go, they easily fit where Mm -hmm. I need them to. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me. Great. We ruled that one out. We're good. Inside the house, everything was just as orderly, but that's not a sign of anything wrong. You could have an orderly home. Charlie was precise in everything he did, but he also had like an engineering type job, so it's personality type. 
but orderly doesn't exactly mean normal. On the back of Charlie and Terry's bedroom door was a poster. Well, it's more of a chart than a poster. It is the anatomical layout of a woman. On one side, she is whole, and on the other side, she appears cut away to reveal the locations of all her internal organs. This is like a medical diagram. So if you see like an anatomical model of a woman, so it's like, here's what she looks like with her skin and here's without it. Okay. This is in their bedroom? On the back of the door, just thumbtacked to the back of the door. Yeah. Okay. I, guilty. I have a pull down chart of the human skeletal system in my house. Mm -hmm. This is not a killer make, but this isn't like an artsy, well-produced thing. It's not framed. It's not vintage. It's not even pretty. It's not even like anatomical art. Like if you look at like botanical or anatomical art, these illustrations can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's not that. It is very very clearly a utility type thing. It's made Mm -hmm. to learn on. And recently, it looks like a study guide more than anything. And that's because it was. But Charlie and Terry, neither one of them worked in the medical field. So it's very strange to have that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quote, I'm looking at the chart that's got these portions of the body exposed, and he's virtually duplicated or exposed some of those areas of the body in what he did with Michelle, said Detective Hemmer. So, like, these were instructions, basically. And there was more. They found medical books, anatomy textbooks, and lots of stuff like that. Again, not people who worked in the medical field. A detailed newspaper article about the human heart. Charlie's internet history was, of course, littered with websites that featured death fantasies, necrophilia, snuff films, and unspeakable violence against women. So it had become clear that Charlie was having, like, graphic fantasies about doing awful, lethal things to women. In addition to all of these horrific things, there were mountains of Victoria's Secret catalogs that all came addressed to Charlie. Which, fine, you can get as many Victoria's Secret catalogs as you want if you wanted to wear their underwear, go on ahead. But he didn't. And then something else clicked. Charlie had left dozens of pieces of Victoria's Secret lingerie cut in half, littered around Michelle's body in her bedroom. And then the cracks began to form in the facade. In further interviews, friends revealed to the police that Charlie had always had a bit of an unhealthy attraction to Michelle, but they kind of dismissed it as just some, like, little thing. Oh, he kind of likes her, whatever. He called her Victoria's Secret. Hmm. So he didn't call her Michelle. This is like a name he called her all of the time. That's supposed to be like his niece. His, yeah, his niece. Mm-hmm. To him, that was her name. It was clear that Charlie was pretty obsessed with Michelle and always knew he would kill her. So when you're piecing all of this together, you're going like, well, clearly like his fantasy was to kill this person. But when he did... He knew that killing her would have to be his very last kill because she was the only woman that he would kill that had been related to him in any way. Once Michelle was gone, he would be found out. And so, after her, it had to be over for him as well. So he knew she's basically his grand finale. And then after he was done with her, he was going to have to kill himself. Yep. There was little doubt in the investigators' minds that they had entered a serial killer's den. I mean, like, there's no doubt in any of our minds. But how could they prove it? Detective Hemmert knew Charlie had to have killed more women. And in the same way that he had killed Michelle, there was just too many maps and details, and he seemed to be too good at it to have have that have been the first time. But who were these other women, and how did this happen? 
So detectives found journals that Terry had kept in the house, but they didn't reveal a whole lot at first glance, just a pretty normal life. She talked about days when they went fishing, what they had for dinner, and the odd bad mood Charlie had, but nothing too alarming. They found that Charlie had kept studious books. He kept records of when he got gas and how much he paid for it and the mileage in his car when he did so. This seems like kind of a strange thing to do, but Charlie did travel for his job, and if he was reimbursed for gas, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. A few weird facts here and there began to trickle in from friends. One, his very best friend, who also happened to be Angela's ex-husband, the man named Jim, did know about the family shooting because Angela had told him one afternoon when he found her sobbing in their living room. He's like, what is going on? And she's just kind of like reliving this horrible trauma. Jim swears that Charlie did tell Terry about this, but there is no evidence from anyone else that she ever knew. So this is kind of like a matter of contention. Did she know or did she not know? Personally, I don't think she knew. But maybe she did and she forgave him. I don't know. There's a lot of other weird shit in this house at this point, though. I know that she was willfully ignoring Uh, One psychologist who studied this case says, and I agree with her, that if you love someone, you choose to be blind. Right. No, I understand that. You know, so she's probably, it is super weird. And it piled up and it it may have added up slowly over time so that you're introducing one new weird thing every Mm -hmm. so often and you just kind of get used to it and you don't, you know, notice. Jim also recalled another odd conversation. He said, quote, We were having a few beers after fishing all day and everything, and I was just really despondent. Somehow we started talking about revenge. Well, you know, you get your feelings hurt and you want to lash out. I believe he looked at me and said, well, if you really want to get revenge, you should kill someone and cut out their heart. Mm, Pretty on the nose there, Charlie. Then detectives combed through every unsolved murder in the area that happened since the late 70s, looking for women whose bodies were found in a similar state to Michelle's. Again, thinking this is his M.O., they might find that it happened before. And they did. They found other women. Hmm. First, detectives came across the 1995 murder of a 35-year-old woman named Darlene Toller. Darlene had been a sex worker in the Little Havana section of Miami. Her body was found on the side of a highway, decapitated with her heart removed. Her body was then carefully wrapped in a blanket, then wrapped in plastic that was tied up with string in a bow, like a present. Oh. Mm-hmm. The blanket contained dog hairs. So did the back of Charlie's truck. DNA analysis of animal hair is incredibly expensive and woefully inaccurate. So we can say, all we can say now is that the coincidence was more than just that. And there's more. Remember how I said Charlie recorded when he got gas and the mileage on his truck? Well, a spike occurs right around the time Darlene Toller was killed. And that murder would have happened 100 miles away from Charlie's home. A lot of gas involved in that drive. Yeah. A lot of miles. Darlene's murder then led to led the police to discover another murder, and this one was closer to Charlie's home. It dates back to July 1989 and happened just four blocks from Charlie Brandt's house. A few local fishermen were fishing under a bridge in Big Pine Key. The day had been pretty uneventful, not a lot to be had, and when one of them seemed to snag something big, they all got excited. It was big but a little too big. As he reeled it in, the group thought maybe it was a discarded shop mannequin, but it's never a mannequin. Come on, people. It was, of course, an actual body, specifically the body of a local woman named Sherry Parisho. 38-year-old Sherry lived in a rowboat. I don't know how she managed to do that, but she did. Apparently, 
during the day, she would get around town and go about her business on a bicycle. And then at night, she'd take the bike, put it on the bow of the boat, row the boat out until she figured she was safe, like nobody could get to her, and then put, and then go to sleep. So wild. Right? She just thought, I'm in the middle of a lake, so I'm safe. Okay. I guess. My gosh. Yeah. Then she'd wake up in the morning, row back to shore, get on her little bicycle, and go about her day. Oh, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, a whimsical, if not grim, existence. Yeah. Investigators believe that she also died on that boat. They said, quote, what we believe happened is that she was placed on the bottom of the boat, possibly with her feet off the stern. Her throat had been slashed, her head nearly severed, and her body was extensively mutilated and her heart removed. Because they so strongly believed it to be key evidence, the local law enforcement kept the boat all that time. The bottom of it bears cut marks in the soft wood, like a well-used cutting board, which, of course, is exactly what it was. This also rang a bell to Jim, who said under oath that around the same time as Sherry's murder, uh, quote, Terry apparently found Charlie downstairs, and he had blood on him, like all over him, like he was covered in blood. And she asked him what had happened, and he said that he was, had been fishing that day, and he was just like filleting a fish. Hmm. A fish does not have enough blood for your whole body to be covered in blood. That's a lot going on. I mean, and we're not talking about like a giant, enormous fish. And although it was a work day and in the evening, Terry believed him. Because again, you don't go looking for problems with people that you love. She was like, he said it was a fish. It was a fish. That's how it goes. But this statement was enough like Jim's statement saying that like, oh, Terry said he was covered in blood and stuff, that this is enough for law enforcement to close Sherry's case. They said they believed strongly enough that Charlie was guilty, that they were able to posthumously convict him. Okay. And there are others. So here's a little wiki roundup on the cases that law enforcement strongly believes Charlie to be responsible for, but cannot be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Caroline Sullivan, who was murdered in 1978 at 12 years old, Caroline was abducted from a school bus stop in Volusia County on September 20th, 1978. Her skull was found in a bucket, leading authorities to presume she was murdered and then decapitated. Charlie Brandt was 20 years old at the time and lived in Volusia County, so he was there, but he could not be tied to the crime in any other way. Uh, then we have the 1988 murder of a woman named Lisa Saunders, who was 20 at the time of her death. Lisa Saunders was beaten, stabbed, and dragged from her car in Big Pine Key in December of 1988. Her heart was missing when she was found, but it is unclear if it was extracted by an attacker or eaten by vultures. Oh. And there are more. I wish I could tell you that that was it, but detectives really, really think it wasn't. They believe Charlie is um, responsible for at least 20 other murders. Wow. Perhaps as many as 30. And here's why. The last little fact I'll tell you about Charlie Brandt is this. He never wanted his wife to know he was a killer. Of course, he never wanted anyone to know he was a killer. So he took opportunities as they came. Charlie Brandt held a job for over 20 years that required him to extensively travel all over the United States. We'll never know how many women he killed because he was quite literally everywhere. Ew. I Holly. Know. I know. And I know I told you that Charlie is the real Michael Myers, and I bet you're all saying, uh, no, Holly, he didn't wear a mask. But didn't he? Charlie wore the mask of an innocent, well-meaning man who loved his wife and worked hard. 
He wore the mask of a good friend and a good neighbor. He wore the mask of a good-hearted uncle and a man without a past. No one knew what Charlie Brandt really was. And in the end, isn't that the most effective mask of all? He sounds more like Dexter to me. Except like for... A, not like a, like a bad version of Dexter. Like, like Dexter's a, brother. A less righteous yeah. version of Dexter. Yeah. 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 I mean, Especially with the Florida stuff. And... Yeah. <laughs> most serial killers do hide in plain sight for some length of time, but it is rare for them to hide in plain sight the whole time. Yeah. If he hadn't taken his own life and decided that he needed to kill his niece and his wife, he would have never been caught. Yeah. His compulsions just drove him to have to do this, and that's why he ended up taking his own life in the end. I just keep thinking about Mary Lou, and she is probably livid that she did not know this. Oh, of course. Of course. They had no idea. They didn't know what had entered their family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, um, and Michelle's friends, um, Debbie and Lisa, yeah. they, and and you know, rightfully so, place a lot of blame on Charlie's father, who was still alive, and oh. never told anyone what he was. Well, that's, I mean, it's his fault. For, for sure. It's, it's his fault that, yeah. Some I mean, people place blame on Angela, but I don't agree with that. I mean, it's, un- it's unfair to fully put blame on her. I think the fact that she even could trust to tell her husband is a big thing. At least she could tell somebody. Yeah. She uh, Um, like said later in life, people are like, well, why didn't you say anything? People died because you didn't say anything. And she's like, you don't understand. I was pretty sure he was going to come back and kill me. mm -hmm. I looked over my shoulder until he was dead. I was relieved when I found out he was dead because I thought for sure he wanted to finish what he started when it came to me. Right. And also, also to a certain extent, Nothing else seemed to have really happened. Yeah. So that's true. As much as that was in her head. Yeah. She was probably also like, I did witness that haze clear from his eyes. She did. And maybe, maybe it did. Yeah. Hopefully it did. I don't know. Now, Charlie did spend a year in a psychiatric facility Mm -hmm. and he was most likely diagnosed during that time. But his records were sealed. So we don't know what was wrong with him, but somebody does. We can't see them now? No, we can't. Eventually, they were released to only law enforcement Mm. who have only said it has helped them understand some of Charlie's motivations, but they have never released those reasons to the public. Mm. Which I'm like, why? I wonder if his dad ripped out the heart of the dog. And it started from there. I mean, if you were making it a movie, that's what you would do. And the dad was like, I don't want that out there. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I mean, who's to say? I don't know. But I mean, if he's killing women and he went after the mom, I don't know. I don't know, because like the other thing is like he, he did love his wife. Yeah. He killed his wife because he wanted to kill his niece. And that was like in his, uh, what authorities think, is that he knew that if she was alive, he couldn't. He couldn't do this like gruesome, horrific murder. So he killed her first so that he could take his time and do this horrible thing. He didn't kill her because he was fixated on her. She was Mm -hmm. just in the way of the other thing. So I wonder like what was going on with his mother because he really was 
try, thought he was killing his father, too, and his father just happened to live. Right. I think he originally killed his mother because, like, he does talk about revenge. He says that, like, mm-hmm. when you want to really have revenge on someone, kill them and cut their heart out. Mm-hmm. Like, well, is he trying to act out this revenge forever with different women? Because I think he was trying to, like, hurt his father by killing his mother. Right. So weird. Yeah. Oh. But then he developed these, like, violent sexual fantasies about murdering women and mm-hmm. the dissection stuff came in later. That wasn't there with his mother. Yeah. Where did that come from? Probably the psych ward. Could be. Could be anywhere, really. No one, there is no explanation. So yeah. that's why, to me, this case is the real Michael Myers. Yeah. It's a guy who snapped as a kid, killed family members, and then disappeared into the ether and covertly murdered women for like 20 years without anybody being able to catch him. And he hid behind a mask of being someone different. And he had that like blank affect when he killed people. Totally Michael Myers. Just saying. And no reason. No reason at all. Well, Holly, I I really hated this one. (laughs) It's a Halloween when you're supposed to hate it. Yeah. Uh, I did not know about this man at all. <laughs> not, you know, not a lot of people do. He's not a widely talked about one. Yeah. Um, yeah, not my favorite. <laughs> well, guys, I found a Michael Myers case, so I what can put that one to bed. to good old, like, little kid ghosts? <laughs> I want to go back to that. Remember when they were the worst? Ugh. Don't tempt me. I'll Not find even. you some little kid ghosts. We have creepy little kids also coming up in a future episode. Yeah. So. so stay tuned for that. Toast? Toast. Right. Well, to Angela. Yes. Oh my gosh. Poor Angela. I truly feel very badly for her. And if you do, I will put a link to her. They call it an interrogation, but I feel like that's kind of an unfair thing to say. It's it's more like an interview. And when she tells the story, it is it's simply heartbreaking. Yeah. Cheers. To Angela. And to all the victims, yeah. for that matter, however many there may be. Mm-hmm. So cheers to the rest of Rose victims. And if we believed the mask was actually the man, we, we would, would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. And Mary served 12 years, only 12, before she was free and granted anonymity. And granted what? Anonymity? How do you say it? Anonymity. Anonymity. Go back on that one. Anon- how do you say it? Anonymity. Anonymity. Like anonymous? I know, but anonymity? Yeah, there Sorry. it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary served 12 years, just 12 years, before she was free and granted an... <laughs> it gets so stuck. Anonymity. It's like I know... <laughs> anonymity. An- now I'm never going to be you able to say it again. You just said it right. Anonymity. Anonymity. Yeah, that's right. It just feels like it's going to be wrong. You put too many M's in it last time. More N's than M's and you're good. 
granted anim- anonymity. You <laughs> <laughs> say it. <laughs> why, why can't I say or it? Or just leave all of it in. Anonymity was granted anim. Oh my God, anon anonymity. Anon anonymity. <laughs> I can't say it. I can't say it where I'm supposed to. Anonymity. No. Anonymity. We're going to get past this. But you did say it right, like twice. Anonymity. Anonymity. Yeah. Yeah, but I can't say it like that. Anonymity. Anonymity. Yeah. Granted anonymity. Yeah. Was free and granted anonymity. <laughs> you did it right, but you're silly. Okay. <laughs> I hope you can put one of those in, or you just can keep all of that. Oh, I don't even care. I hope there's a blooper reel. Oh, 